welcome to the Grace Athens podcast. Our mission statement at Grace is reintroducing Jesus to all people for the renewal of all things. This podcast is shaped around the latter part of the phrase, around renewal, talking about how we can find renewal for ourselves and then also seeing how a renewed people lives their daily lives. Today's episode is going to be from Bethany Wilkinson. We've actually shared this before, but I think it is going to be helpful for us in light of Black History Month and even the specifics that she gives on the action steps at the end as it refers to stories and places. I think the practical plans that she gives us can uh, be a good step forward on how we can celebrate the black lives who have shaped everyone's history. So take a listen, enjoy, and uh, make sure you have something to write down to take some notes so that you can begin stepping into this racial justice journey during Black History Month. Enjoy. everyone. Um, as I was preparing for this, I realized that I never do anything at 8 p.m. <laughs> I was like, normally, I'm like, I hope that like I can get my brain working. Normally, I'm definitely watching Netflix right now. So <laughs> um, thank you for being here. And I'm really excited to spend this next hour with all of you. Um, a little bit about me. I am a lot of things. I do a lot of things. I'm a writer and author. I'm a consultant. Um, I'm also a homesteader. So I use a lot of gardening, farming references. So just be prepared for that. Um, But what's most relevant to our time today is that I've spent the last 10 years or so working with a variety of values-driven institutions that want to be more intentional about diversity and racial justice. So I've spent a lot of years working in and with churches, study theology, um, but then I also spent a good bit of time working with nonprofits and social enterprises and small creative teams who also want to be more intentional and proactive about the cultures they're creating. And so um, the content that I'm going to share today, a lot of it comes from both of those places, both my own faith convictions as a person, um, but also from my experiences in in supporting organizations. And so um, it's kind of going to go in two parts. I'm going to share my screen here in a moment, um, and I'll pause for questions and comments after each section, just so that there's time for us to interact. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to drop them in the chat. Um, it's a little funny when you're in screen share mode to see the chat, so I'll be bouncing between the two. Um, but if you have any questions, I don't want you to lose them, so please capture them. Gap. And the goal of this project was to really understand the gap between good intentions for diversity and the impact of those intentions. And I arrived at this problem in a lot of different ways. One, I was the only black woman on my team working for this values-driven nonprofit. And I was thinking, well, 
we talk a big game about diversity, but I don't see it playing out. What's that about? Um, I also arrived at this question because I would talk to lots of founders and leaders and entrepreneurs and just people who are working saying, hey, we care so much about diversity. We care so much about racial justice, but we feel like our impact isn't what it could be or should be. And so I kicked off this research project um, in January, and, um, and I want to share a couple of the stories that I found. So story number one, it was my first day of interviews. It'd been like, yeah, I think it was literally my first day, like January 25th or 27th or something like that. And I'd scheduled three interviews for the day. I had two in the morning. It was kind of like a small focus group um, with two black women who worked in a large international development nonprofit. And then in the afternoon, I'd made plans to interview another black woman who worked at an architecture firm. So my logic here was, well, if people are having if there are teams that aspire to be more diverse, the best place for me to learn about those experiences is in talking to the people who are there to diversify the team. So that was kind of my logic. Like, let me talk to these people and see how they're experiencing their organizational culture. So that morning I sat down with these two black women, worked for this international nonprofit, um, and they both also served on the diversity task force for this nonprofit. And when I say it's large, I mean it has like 500 employees across the world. So it was a very large organization. Um, so I'm asking them questions about their experiences of diversity and inclusion, sometimes called DNI, if for those of you who aren't familiar. Um, I talked to them about, you know, their bosses and just the general climate. Like, how are you experiencing diversity in this context? And um, and over the course of our interview, this is what they told me. They told me that even though the big organization had a lot of challenges related to diversity, at the end of the day, they ultimately felt heard, uplifted, seen, and supported every day that they went to work. They felt heard, uplifted, seen, and supported. And um, one of the women said, because I can be myself here, I can bring my best to the rest of the work that I do. And so I left this conversation thinking, well, maybe the problem's not as bad as I think it is. You know, these women are feeling really encouraged, really championed, and they feel like they can be themselves when they go to the office every day. Like, that's incredible. Um, but then I got to story number two, and um, this was an interview with a black woman who's an architect at a very white and very male firm. And so over the course of our interview, I, I was asking her all the same questions that I'd asked the women in the morning, um, and she really sounded defeated and hopeless, um, really, really lonely, pretty sad. And I asked her, can you be yourself at work? Whatever that means. Not necessarily that you let your hair down and you don't do your job, but like, do you feel like you can, you know, like you're comfortable in your skin when you're at the office every day? Um, and this was her response. And I want to read it verbatim. She said, no, not at all. And I say that quite emphatically. It doesn't cause me stress or anything. It's so ingrained now, this, the code switching. And then she pauses. She says, I'm naturally a leader with a very dominant personality, but I don't want to be seen as an aggressive black person, so I can't be myself. As a woman, I have to make everything sound like a suggestion rather than a direct order. I always have to play this mediator role between the architects and the contractors. And she said, it's frustrating never being able to be myself, never being able to share with my coworkers, especially if something's happening in the news. I have no black coworkers because our firm is so small. I'm the only woman and the only black person, it can become exhausting and mentally draining. And so she shares this along with some other things. And I ask her, you know, do you think the diversity gap 
can be closed in your industry, especially racially? And she says, no, not without major, major changes. And so as I stepped back and reflected on these two stories, and then over the course of the rest of the year, and then this year even, and all my research, um, as I got into doing some analysis around these things, it was really interesting to to mark how much all of these three women had in common um, because they were all college educated. They all had at least five years experience in their fields and they all had advanced degrees, but there was obviously a huge difference in their daily experiences. And again, as I analyzed the data, where I landed was that the women from the morning had a really intentional leader, a really intentional leader. And they referred to her multiple times throughout the conversation. Um, Now, some of you might be thinking, like, I don't think of myself as a leader. That's not really language I would use to characterize my life. Um, I think about leadership as purely being intentional with your influence. And so it could be among your family. It could be with your friends. It could be in your social media community. Any area where you are being intentional with the influence you've been given is an area that I would call you a leader. Um, and so again, as it as I reflected on these stories, the women in the morning kept talking about this leader, this person who proactively created a culture where people from different backgrounds could thrive, someone who was really intentional about understanding racism and how it was impacting not only the, her team, but the organization as a whole, and was a proactive advocate for the women on their team, on her team. Um, And I think it's also important to note that she was from a different racial background than the two black women. She was a white woman. So there are, we all can be more intentional in our leadership when it comes to the cultures that we're creating. Um, We are choosing and we get to choose what the cultures of the future will be, Um, both by our action and our inaction. We are deciding what the cultures, the workplace cultures, the church cultures of the future are going to be. And I think it's a really important, challenging, but exciting opportunity that we all have. Now, I want to establish some common language here because I'm going to use a few words over and over again that you might not hear all the time, but they're important for this conversation, especially when you're thinking about um, embodying racial justice. These words are ones that you can use as you are trying to incorporate this into the culture of Grace Athens. So the three words that I want to unpack are diversity, equity, and inclusion. As I got into my research, because I came from a a more faith-based background, I was used to talking about justice and reconciliation and And all of these like more churchy terms, which are so good. And I love them. And I think that they're so important. They're biblical, they're theological. Um, But then as I translated into the nonprofit world and churches are nonprofit organizations, I was like, some of these other words actually help us get into what it looks like to put on the value of justice, to put on the value of reconciliation. So that's why I'm using these words, because this is our opportunity to embody these things we say we value. And so the first one is diversity. And I want to frame this in terms of what diversity is not. Firstly, diversity is not a quota marker or a number. Um, It's not just about the percentages represented on your team. Diversity is not a business development strategy. If you spend like two minutes doing research on diversity in organizations, you're surely, you're likely to come across an article that talks about the business case for diversity and how the more diverse your team is, the more creative and innovative you are. And that's probably true, assuming you've done the work to create a culture where that diversity can actually flourish. So it's not a business development strategy. Um, Diversity is not a fixed point or place that you arrive. You don't ever get there. You can never check it off. For people like me, 
I love my checkboxes. I love my to-do lists. It's really tough because it's never over. It's never over. Um, it's not a fixed point. But what is diversity about? I mean, it's basic since diversity is really just about the representation of a variety of characteristics. So race, race gender, military status, ability status. It's just about having um, the state of having multiple identities represented in the room. Um, but taking it a layer deeper, diversity is really dignifying. Um, it's really dignifying. It affirms and validates every human experience. It might not understand every experience, but it at least affirms that experience as human. And it affirms that all humans, especially, I mean, all humans are made in the image of God. So all humans <laughs> have inherent worth. Um, so it's really dignifying. Um, number two, it's change oriented. It's always adapting because humans were so complex and so layered and we're always changing. And so when you're thinking about organizational culture and diversity, your diversity also has to be oriented around changing and adapting all the time. And then lastly, um, this is a little redundant because it's important. Um, diversity is people-centric. Um, it can be really easy to get lost in the politics of it, the theology of it, the philosophy and strategy of it all. And those things are important. Hear me. It's important. But at the end of the day, we are talking about humans and we're talking about their stories and we're talking about their experiences and their identities. It is about humans. It's about who matters to you, whose stories matter to you, um, and what you're willing to do to make sure that people are able to flourish and thrive in your context. Um, I often think about diversity as a culture you create and an ecosystem you cultivate. And so if you take any garden plot, the more biodiversity you have, the healthier the plants are and the soil is going to be. But in order to get there, you have to tend to it daily. And so diversity within an organization takes that same level of commitment and cultivation. Here's a quote from one of my focus groups. Um, this interviewee said, I used to think diversity was a thing we could achieve, but diversity is a way of being and it influences every decision you make. Next, I'm going to talk about equity and equity has a lot of different definitions, um, but at the end of the day in this conversation, equity is about sharing power. And when we're putting this in, in conversation with diversity, it's about sharing power with people who are unlike you. So when I talk about power, there's all kinds of power, but four types to consider within the organizational framework is decision-making power. So who makes the most decisions or who makes the decisions that impact the most people? There's money power. So who makes decisions about money or who makes the most money or who's deciding how the money is going to be used, all of those different things. Um, there's power related to those decisions. Um, there's general influence. So whose title carries the most weight? Who, when they speak up, everyone listens. And on the other end, whose power, whose name doesn't carry any weight and who are we tempted to ignore when they speak up? Um, and then lastly, there's voice, who, whose voice is shaping the messaging, the content, the ideas, um, the messages that communicate who we are, who, we're, who our organization is about, who is shaping those things. That's one area to think about power. Um, what are the priorities of an equitable person or organization? 
The first is representation, um, diverse representation at every level of leadership that at least reflects the community you're seeking to serve. And when I say representation, it's not just about having different colors or shades of people in a room, but it is about, um, it's, I find that representation is only valuable if diverse perspectives are held are esteemed equally. And so what often happens is someone who might not match the majority. So if the majority is white and then a non-white person joins the team, they have one of two options often. They can either assimilate or they can suppress their internal narratives until they can't do that anymore. And so when I talk about representation, I'm not talking about just having people in the room, but it's about having people in the room who can be who they are, who can offer their actual gifts, their most sincere perspectives, and those perspectives are respected, um, even if they're not the majority or the norm. Um, the second priority is transparency. And so when I think of transparency, it's really about openness with yourself and with your stakeholders, and if relevant with the public about what your diversity priorities are. Um, or at least internally, to be honest, about if it's not a priority and to have that conversation internally. And so transparency is just really, it's really important because it's how you build trust with other people and it's how you attract more diverse people to your team, truth be told. And um, there's an organization in Atlanta, it's like a social media um, marketing firm, I guess is the best way to describe it. And back in June, after it was after George Floyd was murdered, um, they kind of came out with like a diversity statement and then all of this, this like pretty extensive bullet point list of things they were going to do in light of what was happening in the world. And so that was back in June. And then in November, um, they sent an update saying, hey, we actually checked these things off the list. And I thought that was incredibly important and powerful that they'd been so transparent about what they were doing, the changes they were making, and then the impact of those changes. Um, number three is accountability. Um, there, it's inevitable that when you're trying to build a diverse community, things are going to miss the mark. You're going to miss the mark in some ways. And so Accountability is about putting in feedback loops so that when there are breakdowns related to creating a dignifying culture, um, you have a system in place in order to address those breakdowns. And then lastly is intentionality. Um, a myth that I've often encountered is that people think that, you know, just because, I don't know, like we, we're a good organization and we have great goals, so diversity should just happen. But as many of you know, a lot of the things that lead to a lack of diversity, a lot of those systems, racism, white supremacy, they are intentionally created. And so the only way to create a new thing is by being incredibly intentional. And the last word I want to talk about here is inclusion. Um, ultimately, inclusion is about hospitality. It's really just about hospitality. And inclusion is about welcoming people, not just one time, but over and over and over and over again. Um, a question that I like to think about as it relates to inclusion is what are you willing to do to ensure people from diverse backgrounds feel integral to what you're creating? Um, not tokens, not accessories, not expedient or just good for your marketing campaigns, but truly integral to whatever is happening. Um, there is, um, I'm trying to think, I had two stories come to mind at once and I'm trying, and I'm trying to recall one of them, not the other. 
Um, oh, got it. So I was, I interviewed um, the creative director for another nonprofit in Washington, D.C. last year. And I was talking to her about a lot of these same questions. You know, what makes for an inclusive culture and environment, all these things. And she described um, inclusion is what happens or doesn't happen when a person walks into a room and they pause to evaluate if that space is good and safe for them or not. And how in that moment, you, if you're being a, an inclusive leader, you have proactively put things in that environment so that anyone who walks through that door knows and feels like they belong when they experience that pause. And I thought that was super helpful because I often have that question when I walk into a space, like I'm scanning the room and the environment to see what in this room communicates to me that someone thought about me being here. Um, and that's an opportunity as we're creating culture and creating environments um, to be really intentional. Um, yeah, so that's inclusion. This is from another focus group participant. They said, inclusion isn't a quota system. Inclusion is when people feel seen, feel valuable, have the ability to lead and to be part of what's happening. And so I love how, how they describe this. So we all have an opportunity to take inventory. Diversity, when you look at your life, look at your relationships, and we're gonna get into, into this in the second half. Who do you value if you just did a quick sweep? Equity, with whom do you share power, either organizationally or in your everyday life? And then lastly, inclusion. To whom are you extending hospitality in an ongoing way? So these are three areas where you can take inventory. All right, I'm going to pause here because I just said a lot of things. Um, I'm going to pause here, and if you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. And if not, we'll keep going, but I'm going to stop sharing for a second. Um, I was going to ask, so going back to the first thought, you know, just kind of laying that foundation at the very beginning, is the question to ask when you're working with people or let's say doing ministry with people or maybe we got some people that are in missional communities together here and we're inviting people in are, is the, is the question we should be asking is, uh, do you feel comfortable here? Do you feel like you can be yourself here? Like, is that the common question? Like, can you be yourself here? And you know, how do we create, I guess, create that space where we can ask that question. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. Cause it's hard because, um, there's this quote from, I have lots of quotes in my head because I interview a lot of people. I have a podcast where I talk to lots of people. <laughs> but I heard this, um, this person once say, the greater the difference, the longer it takes to trust or something to that effect. And I feel like being able to even honestly answer the question, can I be myself here? Like it takes so much trust. And so it's really tricky. Um, I find that one way you'll know pretty instantly is if the person stops coming, um, they stop showing up, then that's, that's an indicator. Um, and you could reach out to it, you know, to figure out why and to hear more. Well, what would have made this feel like a better environment for you? I think it's, um, it also helps if you have like a, a bridge person. And so this is, takes a high degree of intentionality, but if I, so I'm, 
I'm the team I used to work for. I'm the only black, I was the only black person on my team. And so when we were building community with other black people, I would intentionally be a bridge between the organization and those other people. But that was a role that I opted into after a long time. And so I think sometimes it requires that there are internal advocates who will say, you know, I will, I'll be, I'll, I'll figure that out. You know, I'll go listen, I'll go learn. I'll try to see what in this environment is making this comfortable or not comfortable for people from different backgrounds. So um, that's a long response to your question. Ultimately, I'm like, this is, it can be pretty awkward to figure that out because um, it takes so much time. But having, having bridged people within the organization, if you have a few, could, could help. Um, and then what we get into in the second half of the presentation speaks to some of that as well. Yeah. Bethany, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, you spoke about, I tried to grab some vigorous notes, um, but when you were talking about kind of the equity and the inclusion piece, you used the word um, like people knowing that you were intentional about preparing for them to come, right? Mm -hmm. If, <clears throat> are, what are some kind of practical ways if you're preparing for a group that may not be there? You know what I mean? If you are the, um, person that's not in that group, like, is it finding that bridge person, like you said, or just what are maybe some, a couple, one or two practical things that can be done to prepare a place for those people? Yeah, great. it does. Yeah. That's a really wonderful question. Um, I think there are a lot of different things you can do. One is to, um, proactively immerse yourself in the context of the people you hope to attract to whatever it is that you're doing. And that one can be time intensive. Um, but I find that the best way to learn about what makes people feel at home is to go spend time in places where they feel at home. And so maybe it's a music thing. Maybe it's a food thing. Um, maybe it's a time of day thing. But I think you almost have to become like an anthropologist and go really learn people if it's a culture that's unlike your own. Um, I think that a great way that churches do it, um, if, or any group that has like a platform is to platform people who reflect the identity of the people that you hope to attract. So it's like, oh, we have respect and value for black voices or Asian voices or Latinx voices. So you see them routinely presented on whatever that platform is. I'm in the nonprofit that I most recently worked for about four years ago. We overhauled our main event to make sure that it was mostly representing a variety of racial and ethnic backgrounds. It was time and resource intensive because we had to pay for people who weren't in our normal sphere of influence to participate. But looking at the organization now, four years later, the racial makeup of it's completely different. Um, it's way more diverse and that's just in three to four years. And so the same thing could happen on social media, like the people that you're quoting, the books you're recommending, events that you're, again, promoting and platforming, that's a practical way. So it can start on the surface, but over time with consistency, people will start to think, oh, they respect black voices. <laughs> they care about black people and issues that black, and I'm just using black people as an example. This could be any other group as well. Um, over time, people start to see it and it builds trust. Yeah. Great question. Do we have any other questions before we get into the second half? I have a question. Hi. Um, I really liked all that you shared about the inclusion piece. Um, how 
would you say that could be done in a way where it's genuine and it doesn't feel like it's just like checking a box like you kind of talked about with the first piece with diversity? Yeah, I think it might feel like you're checking a box for a little while. And I don't know that that step's inevitable. Um, And I think it will feel awkward for a while until it doesn't. It's like any new relationship. It it takes time and consistency um, and also authenticity on your part. And so um, I don't know if there's a way to avoid the awkwardness of it, but I think with commitment and authenticity, you you build you build towards it. Um, And some people will misunderstand you. That happens. (laughs) Um, But some people will feel really loved by you. That'll happen, too. And so I think it's it's a dance and it's the long it's the long game. and It's a commitment you make with yourself, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, of course. For each and every one of us, there are five areas of personal influence where we can be more intentional about closing diversity gaps in our lives and leadership. There's you, the leader, the person, the culture maker. Um, There is your vision for diversity and inclusion, racial justice for your context. There are your people, so the people who make up your life, Um, and those sorts of things. There are your places, so where you literally spend your time. And then there are stories, um, the stories that you believe, listen to, trust, follow, five areas. I'm going to walk through each one of these and and expound upon it a little bit. Intentionally inclusive leaders embody racial and ethnic self-awareness, racial and ethnic self-awareness. And I put this one here because there's often the temptation when it comes to building new kinds of communities to want to go out and to learn about the the other, whoever they are. And as we just talked about, I'm a fan of going to learn about the other. I think it's incredibly important, Um, but it's equally important that you do a lot of work to understand yourself. Um, You have to be aware of your race or ethnicity, aware of whatever power or privilege you do or do not have and how it affects you and others. Um, Being aware of how your race and your ethnicity, even your gender, I don't know, how is that moving in the room? Um, Being aware of the limitations of your worldview and being honest about those limitations. And then also resisting the temptation to assume that everyone else sees the world the same way that you do. So there are all of these different things that you can do to grow your own racial and ethnic self-awareness. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, Number two is an understanding of the isms. I use these broadly, but it's really helpful and important that you understand racism, what it is, how it functions, how it may or may not be affecting the people in your life or in your organization. Um, You could also do the same to understand um, sexism and other, again, just systems of oppression that are impacting people. As you grow your understanding of yourself, your own social location, and your understanding of the systems that impact people, the better equipped you are to create a culture and organizational environment where more people are able to thrive and participate. And then lastly, a commitment to the process because it is a long if not a lifelong process of learning how to listen, understand, respond to different kinds of people. A really helpful question that I like to reflect on and encourage other people to reflect on um, is what were you taught to believe about race and racism from your parents, from your grandparents, from the community that raised you? Um, Many of us, I almost, I want to say all of us have received and internalized messages about who's good, who's bad, um, who's trustworthy, who's not trustworthy, um, who's valuable, who's not valuable. We've received these messages oftentimes from our families. And it's a really great entry point to better understand 
the racial attitudes you might be carrying even now. So this is a question that I would really encourage you to reflect on. What were you taught to believe about race and racism? The second area of personal influence is vision. Um, you become what you can imagine. So what does it look like to imagine a more diverse and equitable and inclusive future? There's a nonprofit called Creative Reaction Lab based in St. Louis, Missouri. And this team, they work with a lot of um, black and Latinx youth doing community development work. And so what they'll do at the beginning of their design thinking processes is they will take an area of their community that they want to work on. Maybe it's their schools or the hospitals or, um, or just general, like wanting to do poverty alleviation work. And they will spend time with little sticky notes, dreaming about what it would take to change those different institutions. And they will fill the wall with ideas and then they'll work backwards to create a plan to actually address whatever systemic problem they see and care about. And I think it's really easy to underestimate the value of imagination, but I believe it's one of the most powerful tools that we have to say, hey, we have this vision. What are all the ways that we can work together to see that vision become a reality? Step back, create a plan. Um, the second part of this is to have clarity about your why. Why is this work important to you as an individual? There might be a million reasons it's important to your organization, to your church, to your community. We can find a ton of reasons in the Bible why it's important to pursue racial justice. But I think it's important to have clarity about why this matters to you as a person. Um, or to be honest about the fact that maybe it doesn't matter that much. And you're like, well, I'm just kind of doing this because that's what people in the culture are doing. Just you, it's important that you take time to have clarity about your specific why, because that's what will sustain you for the long call. And then lastly, communicate your vision to stakeholders. Oftentimes leaders will sometimes decide on the trajectory they're going. And because they care so much, they assume that everyone else understands and cares about why it's a priority. So it's really important to take a step back and communicate, here's why we're doing this. Here's the, not just the heart behind it, but like, here's my personal conviction about this, whatever it might be. Take time to communicate that vision to the people that need to be bought in to see the change actually happen. So a question to consider here in this area of influence is why is diversity work? broadly defined, why is it important to you? Why is it important to you as a person? Great. Okay, um, diversity impacts every group of people involved in your organization or community. It impacts everyone. And so I'm just gonna list a few areas of impact that you can be thinking about as it relates to the work that you do um, and the team that you are a part of. So there's your board, investors, if you have those, the team that works for you, any contractors you hire. I think um, as a creative person, I'm always hiring like videographers and graphic designers and things, people to do like these random jobs. Um, but that's an opportunity to be really intentional about diversity in, your, in, my, in my community. Um, there are clients, of course. I mean, you're, it's a church, so you don't have clients. So you have congregants, um, but there are the people who can participate and partake in what you're creating. Um, there's your social media community, which is a huge opportunity to diversify the perspectives that are in, impacting your life. And then there are any partnerships and sponsorships that you might have. And so um, sometimes it can be easy to focus on just one of these areas. And I think you should focus on one for a period of time, um, but be mindful of all the different opportunities you have to be proactive about diversifying your organization. Maybe you can't find all of, 
you can't diversify your whole team next week because everyone's not hiring all the time. Like that's not realistic. But do you have a project coming up in three months where you're going to need a graphic designer? Can you go out of your way to find a graphic designer who comes from a different racial background than you? These are opportunities to make a difference. So when you think of diversifying your organization, which groups of people do you have in mind? And I mean this in two ways. I mean, and in terms of which groups within your organization are impacted by this question, board investors, that sort of thing, but also which communities of people do you want to pursue to participate in what they're doing and to invite them to participate in what you're doing? Number four, places. Um, proximity matters because where you spend your time determines who you know. This one's so simple, but it's so important because our communities are so racially segregated. Um, so there's your neighborhood, there's your school, faith community, coffee shops and restaurants, office or workplace. Um, I There's a book called Divided by Faith by Dr. Michael Emerson. Um, it's a great book for those of you who haven't read it. Um, but he, I interviewed him well, a couple of years ago, and he told this story of how, I think it was maybe 20, 25 years ago, he was sending out his Christmas cards, and he looked at the list of, you know, however many people, and he saw that literally, every, he's a white person, or he identifies as white, he saw that every person on his list was also a white person, and he was like, why is my entire Christmas card mailing list one race? And so then he's, he's a sociologist, so he goes and does some research, and he realized that, like, statistically, he lived in literally one of the whitest counties in the whole country statistically um and so at that point like god was doing some other stuff in his life he went to this conference had a huge he calls it a huge awakening god spoke to him told him that he was to live the rest of his life as a racial minority he went back to his suburb told his wife hey we're moving and so he moved his entire family to, I don't remember if it was an, a Latin American community or a black community, but he moved his entire family, new church, new schools, new everything. And he's, and it's true. He's lived the rest of his life as a racial minority. Um, I think he's in Chicago now, but all of that to say, I asked him, I was like, Dr. Emerson, most people aren't going to like quit their whole life <laughs> to go pursue racial justice and diversity. And, um, and he said, yeah, I know everyone's not going to do this, but he does encourage that people pick two areas, if not all of them to be really intentional. So maybe you don't change your church, but you change your neighborhood. Maybe you don't change your neighborhood, but you go out of your way to figure out the school thing. I know that's different and tricky with children, but, um, but I just thought that was a really powerful invitation to think about where you spend your time because your neighbors impact the relationships that you have. Um, and that's a huge opportunity to increase the diversity of your everyday life. So where in your daily life are you connected to people who are racially and ethnically different from you? I know this one's also tricky because of COVID things, but it's just something to consider. And then last but not least is stories. Um, the stories you are immersed in shape everything about who you are. Everything. We, we are shaped as followers of Jesus by the Bible story, by the biblical story. It shapes everything. Um, or it's meant to. And there are family stories. There are the stories of our culture at large. Um, there are stories we inherit. So I talked about, you know, what did your parents or grandparents teach you about race or not teach you? One of my good friends, um, she's a white woman. She was telling the story about how, I think it was maybe her grandfather. It's kind of a long story, but I'll, the short version is 
her grandpa said something about a plumber who came by their house to fix something who was not from his race. And it wasn't like an overt racial slur, but it was just a negative attitude that he expressed in that moment, in that moment. And my friend was like, I'm trying to find those in my own story. Other moments where my parents maybe didn't say something overtly racist, but they, they offered up an attitude about other people that has probably shaped how I think. Um, so there are the stories we inherit that are really important to interrogate. There are the stories we believe unconsciously. So I'm not an unconscious or implicit bias expert, if you're curious. It's fascinating. Go do some research if you want. Um, but the biases we have about people start when we're so tiny. They start when we're like two or three years old um, by the people we see, the stories that we hear, the books we read as really little tiny humans. And then those stories get reinforced over the course of your entire life. And so um, one way to try to interrogate your unconscious biases, something that works for me is to listen to my body. So like if my throat's tightening, or if I feel something weird in my stomach when I'm interacting cross-culturally, those things can be clues to what's happening underneath the surface as it relates to what I think about people. So that's something to noodle on, if you're curious. Um, there are the stories that we pursue, so new stories that we learn through reading and watching movies and social media and all these different things, ways that we get to be exposed to new perspectives. And then building on that, there are the new stories we listen to and choose to believe. And the belief part is really important, especially if you're trying to understand people who have a different racial experience than you. Um, it's very easy to write off perspectives that challenge your worldview or challenge your sense of what's good and what's right and, and what's normal. And that's sometimes, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this, but you try to tell someone about your story and they're like, yeah, but it probably wasn't that bad. Or yeah, you're probably just making it up in your head. Like all these little ways we like, I don't know, invalidate people's experiences. Um, so I find that it's really important that we not only pursue new stories, but that we believe them and that we're brave enough to consider what those new stories mean for who we are and how we live. So a question to consider here is, of the last five stories you've consumed, books, movies, podcasts, et cetera, how many featured perspectives that are different from your own? Just a really practical way to take inventory. So these are five areas. I'm just returning to it again so you can see them all here together um, where you have a degree of influence. It can be really easy to feel overwhelmed when we're talking about racism and racial justice and what it takes to actually make a difference. Um, but I want to leave you with this quote before I go back to questions. Um, when everything around you seems to lack integrity, you find it in yourself. And I, I took this quote from one of my favorite TV shows, Madam Secretary. Um, and, but I just love it because it's this idea that we can't change the whole world tomorrow, but we can change our world tomorrow. And um, I don't know, there's just no excuses for all of us to do the best we can. That's, that's how I feel about it. So when everything around you seems to lack integrity, you find it in yourself. All right, that is all the content I have. I've been just chatting along here. So I'm gonna stop sharing and open the floor for questions again. It looks like we have, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. Um, so we can dig into anything. Or if I didn't cover something and you're just curious, I can try to weigh in on that too. Um, with the, the five areas, like starting with you, what I think's fascinating, and this came from an, an interview we did earlier in the year of just, and it goes along also with uh, the stories that we inherit. Like we all have a race story. When someone told me that, I was like, 
that blew my mind. And um, I had to go back and think of all the times that someone in my family said something or my friend said something in high school or where I went to high school. Uh, and I just didn't realize that like I have a race story myself uh, and had to take like quota down on, okay, what were some of the things that I've heard? Um, could you like dig into, is there any more, I guess, that we could do or think through when it comes to like the stories we inherit and the, the race story that we all have, whether someone has said something about somebody else or thought something negatively about somebody else or about our own race? Like, is there anything else we could do? Do we need to go back and have those conversations? Do we need to write a lot? Like, what, what do we need to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I am a big writer and journaler, that sort of thing. So that is tends to be really helpful for me. Um, but I do think it can be important to go back and talk to the your parents or grandparents. It doesn't have to be like accusatory in any way. <laughs> Just, hey, like I'm curious about this. Or, hey, I remember when you said this. What do you mean there? Do you still think that? Do you still feel that way? Oftentimes when I go back and talk to my parents about something, they, it's just, it's cause I'm an adult now. I just see how human they are. They're like, yeah, we were just doing the best we could. <laughs> that was 20 years ago. We don't even think that anymore. And so it can actually be really healing to go back, um, and ask those questions and, um, and to listen to those things. I think it's also important, especially if you're raised, um, actually this might not just be for people who are in white families. I think it could be for anyone. Um, a lot of families adopted this idea of colorblindness after the civil rights movement. And so many parents of a variety of racial backgrounds, that's how they intended to raise our generation, you know, with this colorblind thing. Um, and so that can make it hard and awkward to talk about. So just be mindful that if people aren't practiced at talking about race. It can be uncomfortable for them. Um, but even knowing that's helpful, like, Hey, mom and dad, were you trying to raise me colorblind? Like, that's a good, that's just good data to have as you're, as you're going on this journey. Yeah. Great question. So I'm still trying to kind of put piece together, uh, like how to word this, but, um, I have a couple friends, uh, who are, um, uh, another race than I am. And I, I want, we have a missional community here, um, and, the majority, actually all of us are white. And so I want to be invitational with them. And you mentioned earlier, kind of creating an, an environment that makes somebody comfortable, like kind of almost preparing the way. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to kind of piece together, I guess, maybe thoughts or ideas on kind of how we can do that here. Like, I feel like I know them pretty well. Um, but just, I was curious kind of if you wanted to expand on that idea of like kind of having them in mind when they show up to a place um, and making them feel comfortable. Yeah. Beautiful question. Um, I'm going to respond by putting myself in their shoes. And I know I don't know these people. I don't know anything about them except what you just told me. <laughs> um, but I think what would make me want to come participate in a new community, if it was, especially if it's a different culture than mine, I would want an authentic and sincere invitation. Like that's, that, that's one thing that I would want. Um, but I would also, 
I don't know. I think I would want it to feel equal. Like you are also joining me in something that's valuable to me. And I don't know how, like how to make that happen, but I think the mutuality of it is important. So it's not just that that person is being asked to adjust to your cultural context, but that you're putting yourself in a position to also adjust to their cultural context. And I don't know how well you know this, these people, um, and if that even be possible, especially in like coronavirus land, but, um, but that's what I think would make it a, a more equitable and loving exchange. If the if it's a cro- truly a cross cultural relationship that's being cultivated, not just one person assimilating to the culture of the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Because I think uh, I've I've invited uh, these friends like to certain events or gatherings before, and I just I I'm always aware of this feeling of like. like we are all white you are the only black person here and like there's this you know like I I don't know who to how to move past that kind of barrier of like how do we make everyone here feel comfortable uh Mm -hmm. and appreciated and, and invited and noticed um and so yeah no that's that's really helpful thank you yeah I would also say as an encouragement like and I don't know how to do this because it could be awkward but it could be awesome if there's a way to like open up the conversation about difference in some way. I don't actually know, but I think my most authentic cross-racial relationships are with people with whom I can talk openly about race. Not necessarily racism or like what's happening in the world, but hey, here's what it's like to live life in my skin, period. You know, whether it's about hair or food or whatever. And so um, I think having just like a good friendship where you can talk about those differences might also help with that in some way. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I kind of have it's a kind of a big question. Um, so just feel free to answer as you like. Um, but we're in an interracial marriage. And um, so we're thinking like down the road when we have children, we're in a very white dominant area. And I don't want our kids to like, I want our kids to feel connected to Filipino culture, to have an understanding of other cultures. Um, I guess my question is just like, how do you keep yourself like centered and still incorporating those other cultures and other perspectives when you're in an area that is kind of devoid of those things. Mm, Yeah. Gosh, that's a big question. I kind of want to be like, you tell me. I'm also in an interracial marriage. (laughs) How does that work? I don't know. (laughs) Um, And I actually have no idea because I've never done it. I I imagine that for my family, um, if and when we have kids, like our families will be a big part of that. Like my my Black parents, his white parents, and like I imagine that they will help carry some of that work with us and our aunts and uncles. Um, it's different because I live, we live with my parents. So they're right here. Um, and then black culture is different than Filipino culture. And that black culture is in Georgia in a way that Filipino culture probably isn't as present. And so um, ways I've seen other families close that gap is through travel and, um, and music is probably a big way that other, I've seen other cult- other people close that gap. Um, and then 
And yeah, and then time with family. And so those are, those are my best guesses in response yeah. to your question, because it is a big one. Um, but God willing, we can check back in a few years and see what we've learned, you know? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. A uh, quick one, just when you're talking about um, taking inventory of books we're reading, um, what should be some good uh, books that we should be reading currently, kind of right now? especially with a majority of us being white here on the, on the call. Yeah. Um, I always recommend Austin Channing Brown's I'm still here, black dignity in a world made for whiteness. Um, it's, it's a memoir. It's incredible. Um, it's relatively short. You can knock it out in like two hours. If you have time to like sit down and just do it. Um, a book I haven't read yet, but I've seen great reviews on is um, Reading Wild Black. And it's a book written by a guy, I think his name's Esau McCulley, maybe. But it's all about scripture and like biblical interpretation and how it's different if you're a black person and not a white person reading it, I think. Um, but that's one that's in my Amazon cart that I want to read and it seem, seems to be important. Um, I also think Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby is a really great one. Um, I'm reading that right now. Um, I would also say anything by Howard Thurman, he, <laughs> which kind of is like out of left field. He's like a mystic contemplative person. He was the mentor to Dr. King and to like people say to the civil rights movement as a whole. But as I'm getting deeper and deeper into racial justice education work, I'm finding that just that need for like a deep centered contemplative awareness of self is really important. And Howard Thurman, anything by him is really remarkable. So it's a few. Bethany, thank you so much. Um, can we all just give a Zoom round of applause for what Bethany shared with us? Um, Bethany, Danielle and I have not been ignoring you. We've just been talking so much <laughs> because this has been incredibly stimulating and uh, I'm sure we'll have a long conversation after this. Um, I, I found everything you shared so clarifying and helpful. Also the questions that you are, are wanting us to ask, I think are so introspective and really help us uh, work through this journey that, that our church is on. Um, I just want to reemphasize that. This is a journey that we're on as a church, um, that Bethany uh, has been a voice for the Grace family for a number of years um, over at Midtown when it comes to race and inclusion and all these different things we talked about tonight. And uh, our staff is actually going to continue this journey with Bethany. Uh, it's a year-long journey that the other leaderships of the Grace Churches are taking. And so um, we're really like at the tip of the iceberg. And we want to start by kind of having a, a conversation and a time with some folks in the community. And then um, our leadership's going to dive into all of this more deeply for an entire year. So um, I just really appreciate our, uh, what's coming up and our commitment to really walk through this and, and starting it off um, right here. So I'd love to end by just praying in the things we've heard and let the spirit guide our community into a future that is more diverse. So let's end it that way. Lord Jesus, we thank you for tonight. Lord, we thank you for Bethany and the grace that you've put in her and, and, and the countless number of churches and nonprofits that uh, she's impacted with, with so much of this wisdom. And God, I just pray that it would go beyond just a conversation we've had here, but we begin to talk with family and friends and Holy Spirit, you would just do that work of, of counseling us into the future of the church you want. 
And Lord, I just pray as we make disciples of all people, of all ethnic, um, Lord, that you would grow your multi-ethnic, diverse, beautiful family here at Grace Athens. May a year from now, may Grace Athens look different um, because of your work, Holy Spirit. So we invite you in once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and Bethany's content. You can find her on Instagram at bethany.wilkinson, her website, bethanywilkinson.com, or on her podcast, The Diversity Gap Podcast. Go in peace. We hope to see you soon. Thank you.